You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Coal, oil and gas shouldn't be vilified. They've brought us the civilization we have, but with side effects. But the big one is carbon dioxide leading to global warming, and we have to do something about it. Everybody and a really warm welcome to the Wheeler Centre to the Fifth Estate tonight. Uh, my name is Sally Warhaft and it's an absolute pleasure to be here and to see so many of you here. Um, and thank you too to Paperback Bookshop who are uh, here as they so often are and will be selling copies of Alan's book um, at the end of this evening. And also just to let you know before we get into it that um, I'm going to do some Q&A tonight too. So. Um, if you think you might have a question towards the end of the conversation, there will be some time for that. Alan Finkel, uh, Australia's chief scientist from 2016 to 2020, a neuroscientist, engineer, entrepreneur. He led the 2017 National Electricity Market Review, the 2019 National Hydrogen Development Strategy. He chaired the 2020 panel developing the Low Emissions Technology Roadmap and is currently Special Advisor to the Federal Government on Low Emissions Technologies. And the reason we got him here this evening, the author of this um, new book, Powering Up, Unleashing the Clean Energy Supply Chain, which, is it actually out, Alan, or is it like tomorrow, the official release date? No, you're at least a week ahead. The official release date is June the 13th. There you go. We got him really early before anybody else did, so give him a very warm wheeler welcome. Um, I'm, I'm going to begin with a, a couple of quotes from the book for you to just riff off so that we okay. can start getting a sense of the scale of what it is that, that you're thinking about and, and writing about. Um, you say, the global clean energy transition is the most profound economic change to civilization of all time. Never before has a major source of energy been eliminated from the global economy, and now we are proposing to replace all three of the big ones. So tell us how we can appreciate the scope of, of what has to be achieved here. Sally, it truly is an extraordinary thing that we're planning to do, and we've already started. Um, in the book, and I've often said this, um, I try to help people understand just how important energy is by comparing it to education and medicine and health. And if you took away modern medicine, we would only wind the clock back at most a couple of hundred years. Um, in fact, if you went to the doctor more than 150 years ago, that probably increased your risk of dying compared to <laughs> not going to the doctor, which is a concern. Um, if you took away modern education, you'd be going back to the Middle Ages. But if you took away the, you know, a managed energy system, you would literally be going back to the Stone Age. We depend on energy for everything that we do in sedentary civilization. That's why I said it's the biggest economic transition since the start of agriculture. You know, when we were nomads, it was not the same kind of issue, but once you're sedentary, energy is critically important. 
Um, and it's a huge thing that we're doing. So for thousands of years, of course, the managed energy supply uh, came from biomass, burning wood um, as, as in, you know, branches or cuttings, um, cow dung or animal manure. And of course, the other big form of energy was animal energy. Animals doing work for us. But then it all changed in the mid-1800s or early 1800s when coal started to get mined. It's not as if coal wasn't known to humanity beforehand, but it became seriously used in the early 1800s and eventually that led to the Industrial Revolution and the adoption of coals, if you look at a graph from about 1850, it's just gone up and up and up and up. It's just starting to flatten now, but it's mm -hmm. taken a long time because as billions of people have come out of poverty, their expectations increase and the need for energy increases. And then around about 1900, free-flowing oil from oil wells uh, started to be found and used, and that got used, um, it made transport so much more practical. So, you know, if you compare a car running on petrol versus a car running on a steam engine, it's much more practical to have the car running on petrol. So free-flowing oil started to get used in 1900. It didn't stop the growth of coal. It just brought additional uses of managed energy into the system, and it's just gone up and up and up and up. And predictions from 50 years ago of hitting peak oil just have not eventuated. And then from about 1930, the use of natural gas started to increase, and that pushed oil out from, say, diesel from home heating, and now we all use natural gas heating, and it just went up and up and up. So all three of them have increased dramatically decade by decade by decade, and they underpin everything in our society. And now we're saying to ourselves, the side effects, it's like a strong medicine. Coal, oil and gas shouldn't be vilified. They've brought us the civilization we have, but with side effects. And the side effects is the, well, there's always the particulates and the local pollution, but the big one is carbon dioxide leading to global warming. And we have to do something about it. You you write quite sweetly about, I almost thought about opening tonight by getting us all to give our thanks to coal before it goes. <laughs> uh, uh, your reminder in the book about how uh, much we have to be grateful, um, but getting rid of it, how we go about that, because you, it's not as straightforward, uh, we'll, we'll get into this, as, as, as lots of people would like Just to think. Just on that point, yeah. it, I think, in a sense, I'm trying to contrast coal, oil and gas, the fossil fuels, with tobacco. So if you think about it, smoking has caused huge harm to civilization, people around the world, with very little benefit, if any. Mm. Whereas coal, oil and gas brought us enormous benefit, mm. but the side effect is significant. So electricity is the magic. Yep. And the ambition is... Uh, an electrical age, an electric age. What does it look like, this new age? Well, first of all, I'm trying to get copyright on the phrase electric age. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do say in the book that electricity is like magic. You can use electricity for so many things. Um, with innovations in technology, we can use electricity 
for all the energy purposes of oil, coal and gas, we can use electricity for heating, we can use it for transport, we can use it for, um, for lighting where previously you would have used gas lights. And then we can use it for so much more. You can't use coal, oil and gas heat to run a computer. You have to have electricity to run a computer and the telecommunications and all the, the digital age. So there's very little that electricity can't do. There are some things that it can't, but there's very little that it can't do when it comes to energy. So we can see a way forward where we use zero emissions electricity, and at some point we should define what zero emissions electricity is. But we can see a way forward where zero emissions electricity will replace oil, coal and gas, the fossil fuels, for all energy-related purposes. So in that sense, it's like magic because it can replace those three incredibly important sources of energy and do so much more, running our computers and our lighting and our um, optical fibres and everything. Mm. Um, the book is about the supply chain. This is, it's about getting this uh, and, and, and getting it reliably and continually. And you use an example of Napoleon um, and that, you know, that he was actually in retreat when he got hammered. Uh, and the reason was that he couldn't get supplies to his men and his horses. It was a supply chain problem. Um, I think it was just today there was a, a statement or an interview with the incoming CEO of Qantas talking about um, the fuel that they're hoping to gradually replace uh, aeroplanes uh, with, but and she used supply chain. And I thought this is going to be, we will very soon, if we don't already, hear it as an excuse, mm -hmm. I suppose, for things. Um, but tell us, um, well, broadly to begin with, what what are the key things about the the global supply chain um, that are that are absolutely integral to bringing in this age of electricity? If I had to identify one, it would be mining. So when we talk about zero emissions electricity, especially in Australia, we're talking about solar and wind electricity. In other countries, nuclear electricity is going to be, and is already and will increasingly be significant, and hydroelectricity. But in Australia, we have not built a hydroelectric or a hydropower dam for about 50 years. So what we've got is what we're going to have into the future. They last a long time. And uh, we've absolutely ruled out any consideration of nuclear power through legislation at the Commonwealth level back in 1998. So all of our future growth is solar and wind. And basically across the planet, the vast majority of the growth in the electricity supply will be solar and wind. They're wonderful. It's zero emissions electricity and totally unlimited. But the resource footprint for producing the solar panels for producing the wind turbines and the transmission lines that support them and the batteries that make up for the fact that they're variable. You can't just rely on solar and wind without having batteries and transmission lines to help you fill in the gaps in the supply. Some people refer to solar and wind as VRE, that stands for Variable Renewable Electricity. Whereas hydroelectricity, which is renewable, is not variable because if you want to switch on the electricity from the old snowy scheme or 
uh, and the other dams, you can run it for three months in a row until it runs out of water. It's not variable, it's on demand, but solar and wind are not on demand. The quantities of silicon and silver that we need for solar panels, the quantities of lithium and manganese and nickel and cobalt that we need for batteries, the quantities of aluminium that we need for transmission lines, the quantities of copper that we're going to need for the electric vehicles of the future are just monstrous. There's no other word that can describe what we're looking at here. We're looking at a massive expansion of mining. And unless that expands at a rate sufficient to supply the industrial machinery, the base producing all these things, uh, then, then things will slow down. But there's a huge social and environmental, local environmental impact of that mining expansion. Well, we're pretty fantastic at it here though, aren't we? Digging things up out of the ground. It sounds like an opportunity, Alan, that, uh, um, I mean, when we, we're so attuned, I suppose, to thinking of mining here as being nasty somehow, that, that so much of it has, has um, had these consequences. So um, you talk about, in, in this quest, investment not divestment with um, with how we think about mining, how we expand mining. Can you tell us about that? It's an important point. Um, one of the themes in my previous half book, the quarterly essay, Getting to Zero and Here, is that the way to achieve this transition, and I do think this, as we've said already, is the hardest transition that we've ever contemplated, um, we have to be investing in the new. We can't do it by shutting down the old. So people, and I understand why, they want to shut down coal mining, they want to shut down the use of coal and oil and gas, because they're the bad guys, they're the bogeys in the room. But we need the energy that comes from them. And so the right way, in my opinion, to do, achieve this transition is not by shutting things down arbitrarily, but by investing in the new technologies, the solar, the wind, the batteries, the electric vehicles, the heat pumps, which is something we'll have to explain later on, but the new way of heating houses. By investing in the new, we will end up with solutions that are clean and affordable and possibly even cheaper than the old oil, coal and gas. And that will make the old oil, coal and gas system obsolete. Mm. And that way we will um, achieve the transition without losing the benefits that our society depends upon. So why I use the phrase investment, not divestment, is that there's been a huge pressure put on um, traditional oil and gas companies over the last 10 years to get out of oil and gas. And to some extent, they've responded. One of the most famous uh, examples is R Royal Dutch Shell, which was actually, as a result of activists taking them to court in the Hague, uh, forced by the courts to sell off some of their oil and gas wells to accelerate their shift out of oil and gas. But the point is, every time they divest, they're selling the asset. They're not closing it down. They're selling it. So that divestment means that a publicly accountable entity like Royal Dutch Shell is selling it to a, PP, a private equity provider or one of those state-owned providers like Aramco, a miner and oil company. And they're not 
um, subject to public scrutiny in the way that Royal Dutch Shell or Exxon or BP or Mobil is. And what happens is the company that buys that shell, that, that well, continues to operate it, but at lesser standards. So the planet is worse off. The company is now perceived as having Great. done the right thing, mm. but the planet is worse off. So that divestment is not the right thing to do. What I'd prefer to see them do is continue to milk, if you like, the oil well and use the money that they earn from that to invest in new zero emissions technologies that will help them to transition their business and make the demand for oil and gas go away. So that's be careful what you ask for. Is that's investment, not di divestment. Mm. Sorry. It's be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you ask mm. for. The, mm. the end result is worse for the planet. Mm. Um, when you talk about the transition, what sort of a time span do you imagine? Uh, and what does it need to be? Sadly, it's, it's long. Um, I mean, the science tells us that we have to get to net zero by 2050, and that's what's been accepted through the Paris Agreement. But it doesn't really look likely. I, th I think that the 1.5 target, that's gone. Um, we haven't gotten to 1.5, but there's no plausible trajectory that will keep the rise of global temperatures to 1.5 degrees is two degrees, which is the secondary ambition of the Paris Agreement. Is that plausible? Probably not on current trajectories, but there are some good signs that the trajectories we're on are starting to accelerate, and so that would be um, good. Uh, so I don't think we can get to net zero by 2050, but maybe by 2060 or 2070, because the, moment, the momentum is building. Mm. Um, I mean, so much there's so many moving parts um one of them is getting the policy settings right which of course varies in every country um in the world um denmark is the poster child that you write about uh in the book it's had 50 years of cross-party support on its energy uh and environment policies, which is just so remarkable. We've had, you know, minutes to midnight, haven't we? <laughs> We've had about 90 seconds. Um, and it, it, it always feels a bit fragile in Australia. Um, what sort of interventions are necessary still here um, that you, you see in places like Denmark? Well, uh, just talking about Denmark, it, it, it's interesting how their fabulous strategic position evolved. It actually started with the oil crisis in the 1970s, and it wasn't about emissions reductions, it was about energy independence. And so one of the things they did was invest in some of the oil fields in the North Sea, but very much they started to invest in the wind industry because they could see that that reduced their demand for oil. It's, it's planned obsolescence, it's reducing the need. And that then that was absolutely accepted by all political parties and it evolved into using the same strategies to reduce emissions. And it's been good economically for Denmark because um, their oil industry, sorry, their wind turbine manufacturers are some of the biggest in the world. So they've made a lot of money out of it economically and they've 
got the highest adoption of wind of any country in the world so that their average grid electricity emissions are very, very low and they're, they're doing fantastically well. So consistency of policy was really, really good. Um, they got the wind industry going by... Um, by government incentives, by government rules about what you could use. It was a suite of things. What a lot of the world has politically tried to do in recent decades is carbon taxes in the form of emissions trading schemes or direct taxes or, or others. And it's not, not convincing that that's been effective. It certainly sharpens the mind, but um, there are too many weaknesses in the way that it's implemented. So if you speak to an economist, good chance that the economist will say to you, look, the solution here is an economy-wide carbon tax. And then every single uh, player in industry will seek to reduce their tax obligations by lowering the emissions of their products and their, their manufacturing lines. But it only works if all countries do it and if all sectors of the society are subject to it. But because not all countries do it, every single emissions trading scheme in the world has exceptions for export exposed industries. And then they allow the companies to either reduce their emissions or pay a, t a penalty. And it's just not clear. I can't find any papers that show specific benefits in terms of emissions reductions from the carbon taxes. You, you can see blips on overall emissions, but nothing specific. What's really worked is what the Danes did and the British did to provide subsidies for the wind industry. What the Germans did in particular in the uh, 1990s to provide subsidies for solar panel installations. They spent a couple of hundred billion dollars, US dollars, on subsidising solar panel uptake in Germany. Um, and that meant that the industry grew and the prices came down. Uh, China also invested through subsidies in, in solar panels. And so because of those direct government interventions through incentives and subsidies, the wind industry grew from a niche industry and the solar panel industry grew from a niche industry. Now, solar and wind don't even need subsidies. But, but if you just went back to two th the year 2000, solar electricity was about 100 times more expensive than solar electricity is now. It was inconceivable that people would just take it up. It's worth illustrating that point. No governments had to push companies into using coal in the 1800s during the Industrial Revolution. No governments had to push car companies into using oil instead of coal for their cars. No governments had to push people into using natural gas for cooking and heating, given the option. Of course, governments had to su support the infrastructure to make it all possible, but they didn't have to push it on people. Whereas the shift from those fossil fuels into solar and wind, it's been pushed on us. I think most of us are grateful recipients, mm. but it, it wouldn't have happened without political activists making governments aware and then governments investing by now trillions of dollars to get these industries over that very, very expensive starting phase. Um, something we all observed or experienced in the COVID pandemic was very much supply 
chat. I think everybody, you know, it was one of the one of the phrases, wasn't it, that came out of COVID supply chains mm. when we didn't have enough ventilators or masks and these sorts of things. And and we realised that the component parts weren't all necessarily here. And the same is true for just about all of the technologies that are going to be needed, that no country is an island. I think you mentioned in the book there's a one tiny component of batteries that go in mobile phones that's only found in the Congo or they're the main supplier. Um, so we, we have that. We have at the same time, again, partly due to COVID, but other factors as well, a deglobalizing economy, deglobalizing world, really. Fences are going up. And, um, and I wonder how, um, how does that fit in uh, to what are already enormous challenges that the world is kind of putting up its shutters. Um, and if I can throw China into that at the same time, uh, that we have the emerging power that, uh, boy, what they're doing mm. uh, on this front, how do those three things kind of fit together? Yeah, it, it's really... Um some tension between the geopolitics and the energy security, the global energy security issues. So it's probably easier to look at, say, some examples of a supply chain. So one of the things that you will hear about is called rare earth elements. It's a family of 17 elements that they're not that rare, but they're really spoken about in normal English. Um, they're used in all sorts of electronics and the glass on mobile phones, but for the energy transition where they're extremely important is that from the rare earth elements we can make the strong permanent magnets that are used in the electric motors of electric vehicles and in the generators of wood, wind turbines. So we need lots and lots and lots of mining of rare earth elements. But what comes out of the ground is a complex ore and between 90 and 100 steps are required to refine it. So what's been happening over the last 20 or 30 years, the rare earth elements are mined in China, in Africa, in Australia, other places, and at the 90% level, they go to China for refining. And then they go all over the world, they go into domestic manufacturing in China, but they also go around the rest of the world. So there's a supply chain bottleneck, if you like, through China. And so governments are worried that if the geopolitical situation gets tenser, that, say, refining of rare earths could be used as a, as a trade weapon. Yes. And it's a real risk. And you see exactly the same with lithium. So lithium, Australia, by the way, is now the biggest exporter of lithium mm. in the world. And 20 years ago, I don't think we did any. So it's a testament to the innovation and the um, willingness to take a risk and the project management of Australian mining industries. But we export about 52% of the global lithium exports. But typically, the lithium rock, which is the form that the lithium's in, it's not just lithium out of the ground, it's a complex ore, goes to China where it's refined into a chemical called lithium hydroxide, which is then shipped to Chinese car manufacturers, but also to Tesla in Nevada and to BMW in Germany. A lot goes through China. So governments are trying to do something about that. The Americans last year passed an enormous 
climate bill called the Inflation Reduction Act with an unfortunate acronym IRA. And Although it's a good sort of meaningless name, isn't it? The oh, the name is completely Reduction meaningless. Act. I mean, what does that mean? Nothing. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but in fact, it's it's, it's got two major goals. One is climate policy to accelerate the investment into the transition, but the second is industrial policy. Yes. It's very much an MIA. I'm not talking about missing in action. I'm talking about made in America. So it's industrial policy and climate policy. And it's also anti-China. There are specific provisions in there against importing things from China. So it is so big, we're talking about a trillion, probably about a trillion US dollars mm. over the 10 years from last year when it was brought in. And that trillion dollars US will attract a couple of trillion dollars of international and domestic American funding that it's changing the balance of investment. Um, Just that example that you gave of the rare earth elements and the bottleneck in China, I mean, uh, just that one thing, um, because it's not just the skills that, that they've really, you know, shot to the, to the top uh, in, their, in their experience of, but it's reflected in things like PhDs. You make this point, I think it's yes. rare earth elements in the book, that uh, we have one or two PhDs in this area in Australia, there's a in I think China. Uh, so we're, we're, this knowledge economy as well um, is not evenly spread either, is it? Yeah. I, I think I was generous when I said that we had one or two PhDs yeah, right. in rare earth element sciences um, because I couldn't say for sure that we had zero. Right, okay. But <laughs> China has a couple of thousand people who have graduated in PhDs on topics in the science of uh, extracting and using the rare earth elements. And for people to underestimate the Chinese capability, that's a big mistake. A lot of people still think that China has copied its way to success. Well, no, it probably historically has, but that doesn't mean it's still dependent on that. And to illustrate that, uh, earlier this year, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, and this is not in the book, it only came out a couple of months ago, published a study they did where they scanned the scientific literature and looked at 2.2 million high-quality papers, and they looked at which countries the authors were doing their work, and they looked at it across 44 significant technological areas, so cybersecurity, mobile phone, you know, 5G and 6G, hypersonic missiles, rare earth processing, um, all sorts of things, battery technologies. And of those 44 areas, China was number one in 37, mm. and America was number one in the remaining seven. And that's original publications. That's not copying. That's China investing in the technologies of the future. It's very significant. So what should we be number one in? Well, um, we are number one in mining, and that's not something to be dismissed. It's, it's because of um, project management commitment and innovation. So as chief scientist for five years, you know, what the three things that... Your, the job description asks you to look at is uh, innovation, science and research. And so I was often on panels or discussing innovation with people. And the tech entrepreneurs who are developing multimedia or communications technologies uh, were 
almost aggressively dismissive of our reliance on mining. They see it as a wasted asset and it's just dumb work of digging it out of the ground and shipping. What they didn't recognise is that there's a lot of process innovation. The end product is just dirt. You know, iron ore, it's rust. And we're shipping hundreds of millions of tonnes of rust, if you like, around the world. So if somebody just looking at this, that says, that's like a dead industry, it's old-fashioned, it's not progressive at all. The trick is to do it efficiently. And our mining companies have used artificial intelligence software um, automation, long-distance control room control, uh, in other words, remote control, uh, algorithmic process control for quality, brilliantly. And so despite the fact that the individual salaries in the Australian iron ore industry are probably the highest in the world with the fly-in, fly-out people, our average price of producing a tonne of uh, iron ore is $32. The world average is $43 US. And Vale, our closest uh, Brazilian company, our closest big iron ore competitor, is 37 mm. So despite the high salaries, we've got the lo lowest production costs. And it's not just because we've got the best iron ore deposits. A lot of those other countries have good iron ore deposits as well. I mean, presumably, though, Australia is going to have to get a lot smarter about a lot of other things if well, we want to be in this you know in this game and you you say the world's problem is australia's opportunity correct um ross garno says you know we don't pick winners sol griffith talks about the australian imagination gap many people including me and you've just alluded to this talk of you know oh we don't make things anymore um you know it, it are we too critical do you think um Yes and no. I mean, it upsets me that we don't have a big manufacturing base. Um, we do do a lot of intermediate manufacturing tasks, like some of the design and some of the componentry, but not, not as much as we would like. But I'm just impressed with the innovation in the mining industry. So I just mentioned iron ore, but also now we've got our own uh, lithium refineries that are starting up in the last couple of years in Western Australia that are converting the lithium rock into lithium hydroxide and lithium carbonate. BHP now has a refinery to convert the nickel ore that it used to just ship into nickel sulphate, which is ready to go into batteries. Uh, so things are starting to change, but it definitely is built on that mining base. But we've got that asset and we should use it. But the, the smarter we are, the better we can uh, take advantage of it. Uh, on a totally separate issue, I think that some other countries, like Norway in particular, have been politically more savvy about capturing some of the value of those exports for the common good. And so uh, Norway, which is one of the most progressive countries in terms of driving towards zero across their economy, uh, has made a huge amount of money out of oil, oil, oil mining in the um, North Sea. But a lot of that is captured through a sliding scale of taxes, and they have a trillion dollar, US trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund for a pretty small country. We've got the future fund, but it's much smaller than that for a much bigger country. Mm. So I'm not talking about the political savvy, but I think it's perfectly legitimate to be using our mining capabilities. The world needs what we've got. But what I'm optimistic about is us shifting 
from the dig and ship mentality to adding value. And the clean energy transition is giving us an opportunity that wasn't there before. For years, people have said we should be adding value. But there was no economic reason. It was, it's much cheaper to make steel in Japan or Korea than here. It's much cheaper to do lithium refining and rare earth refining in China. But what's changing now is that the purchasers want that refining to be done with low emissions energy. And our energy supply in the West is mostly natural gas, but transitioning to solar and wind, whereas in China it's mostly coal. So the profile of the finished product is better when it's done here. And there's other drivers. Um, can I quickly talk about green iron as you a value-add uh, opportunity? You can talk about whatever you like. Okay, so we export mm. iron ore, which is rust, um, but it's actually ferric oxide and ferrous oxide. So it's an iron oxide. That's what's in the ground, and that's what we're exporting. It's mixed up with a bit of dirt, but that's basically what we're exporting. When it goes to a steel maker in China or Korea or Japan or wherever, they put two things into a giant vessel called a blast furnace. They put iron ore and they put coal. And we tend to ship both of those. We put 200,000 tonnes of iron ore into a big bucket of a ship and it goes off. It's very cheap to transport. We put a couple of hundred thousand tonnes of metallurgical, that's high-grade coal, into a big ship and off it goes and they do everything. But that, uh, that blast furnace process, which is responsible for taking the iron oxide and converting it into the element iron, which is the main input ingredient of steel. So steel's two steps. First you turn the iron ore into iron, Yes. And then the iron is alloyed with nickel and chromium and other things to make steel, a variety of steels. But at the output of the first stage, doesn't matter what country you do it, it's iron, the element iron. That process is responsible for about 8% of global carbon dioxide emissions. It's huge. From one subsector, one industry subsector, 8% of global carbon dioxide emissions come from that blast furnace process of making iron. And the way around it is to get rid of the coal and replace it with hydrogen and electricity. So you're replacing coal with two things, with iron and electricity, sorry, with hydrogen and electricity. We can make lots of hydrogen in Australia. We've got lots of, and we can do a lot more solar and wind electricity in Australia, but shipping the hydrogen is very expensive. And so if you look at it from Japan's point of view in the future, if they were to buy hydrogen from us in the quantities that they would need for making iron for their steelmaking process, it would cost them two or three times as much per tonne of hydrogen than our production price in Australia because the shipping is so expensive. It's difficult to ship hydrogen. And then in their country, they don't have a lot of renewable electricity. So they, can't, they don't have the electricity and it's too expensive to import the hydrogen. So all of a sudden it makes sense for us to add value to our iron ore. And instead of shipping the iron ore, to use hydrogen and electricity onshore to convert, on, on our domestic shore, to convert the iron ore into little briquettes of pure iron and then just ship the little briquettes of pure iron. They should make the steel in Japan and Pittsburgh and, and Seoul because there are so many different varieties of steel and so many different shapes of steel, they need to be close to their customers. But we could 
massively add the vet to the value of our shipments by going with the decarbonisation agenda mm -hmm. of the global economy. Mm. And there are other examples mm. in fertiliser and marine fuels and aviation fuels that I can spend a lot more time elaborating, yeah. but I won't. Mm, I feel like the next family road trip, I'm going to take my kids to Kalgoorlie and there see if go. I can, you know, get them, get them interested. Now, are you sure that this is going to happen, this electrical age, Alan? Because I know people, um, it wasn't that long ago, it really wasn't that long ago that we were told it was all gas, you know. Correct. And, uh, and now that's wrong. Um, and people are ripping up their stoves and their heating and uh, spending a lot of time and thought and money um, on, in, on individual infrastructure, individual um, decisions that, that – and it probably gets back to the timeline question, which we didn't actually get a precise answer how, how long this might take. Um, but the um, individual – Cho consumer choice in this massive um, global uh, workshop, I suppose. Um, w w what is the place of that for, for people, and particularly people that are really struggling, you know, to, to make choices economically in the household? So consumer choices are actually the driver ultimately of the successful transition. It started with government pressure, but it's consumers that will make it successful. And people say to me sometimes, what can I do? So it does depend on where you are at economically. Uh, if you can afford it, make sure that your next car is an electric car. Let, let me just backstep and say that if you think about the producers, whether they are a mining company selling to a car company or a car company trying to sell to individuals, the single most important thing for a producer is to make things that people want to buy. Mm. And so they are genuinely responsive to consumer pressure. And I'll give you an example that uh, blends that with um, what we were talking about, green iron. So the biggest committed green iron and the first big green iron plant is one that's being built at the moment in northern Sweden. And it's costing them about four billion US dollars. So it's very, very expensive, five or six billion dollars Australian. And they've raised most of that, not through equity, but through borrowings. And why are the banks and the investors willing to do it because they've pre-sold two-thirds of their output to four companies, Mercedes and BMW, mm. car manufacturers, and Mealy and Electrolux, appliance manufacturers. Yeah, right. And I don't have to tell you, you can imagine that Mercedes knows that in Germany and in America they can offer a particular model car for $120,000 or for $130,000 if you buy the version that's made with green steel. And some consumers will pay that extra to feel good and to genuinely do something for the planet. So that consumer power coming from people buying dishwashers and dryers, clothes dryers, or cars, or small commercial vehicles, is going, is putting pressure on Mercedes and BMW. Mm. It's pressure and opportunity mm, yeah. on Mercedes, distinct, you know, because they can distinguish themselves from other car manufacturers. And it's coming up, and it's actually allowing this new plant to be financed. It's fantastic. So if you can afford to make your next car an electric car, 
you're sending the right signal up the supply chain and you're getting a better car than mm. a petrol-powered car. Um, if you can afford to buy toys, I, I mentioned in there, Mattel is now coming out with a line of toys that is fully made with recycled products and zero emissions products. Those signals are really important. Uh, if you can, if you're buying shares, think about companies that are already committed to ethical manufacturing and low emissions manufacturing. Although then you get back to your divestment investment well, that's, no, that's got, So that's one of the biggest problems. And mm. one of the biggest problems, one of the, one of the things we need is international financing. Mm. And they're caught up in this so-called ESG financing, that's environment, social and governance issues. And even though ESG is covering three different areas of good corporate practice, most people focus on the E as if that's the only thing that counts. And the sad thing is that the banks and the ESG financing funds, they're looking at what I call single materiality. They're looking at the material impact, the significance of the impact on the company of its policies. And if it doesn't have the right policies, will it be able to borrow money? Will investors support it through share transactions? And so they reward companies for divestment. For example, BHP was thrown out of the Australian uh, ESG index because they had too much of an exposure to coal. And when they sold off about, sold off about half of their coal, they were brought back in as one of the lauded ESG companies, but the coal mines are still running. There's a bit of a move now coming out of Europe for new funds and new regulations that require that the ESG is looking at double materiality, so looking at the risk to the company, which is what they've always been doing, but also looking at the impact on the planet. And we have to make that shift, otherwise we're investing in the wrong actions. Mm. Um, if you would like to ask Alan a question, please just put your hand up um, nice and clearly and keep it up until somebody puts a microphone in it. There we go. Yeah, Alan, you talked about choke points. Um, I'm just um, winding forward into the future. If uh, we have a Republican president returned in the next election in the USA, what sort of choke point do you think that Donald Trump's going to put... <laughs> on the process that you're talking about, this transition, because it seems to me that America is, has to be one of the, the leading lights in transitioning to this new carbon-free economy. Like to comment? Yeah, look, that's a um, difficult question because you're asking me to imagine the unimaginable or the, the horrible, but America, because of Donald Trump to a large extent, was on the outer, they really weren't participating in global low emissions initiatives, transition initiatives, and when Biden came in, it was like they were back at the table. But then people were still sceptical because they weren't spending money. Uh, Biden, with this IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, did something remarkable because of the size and the bipartisan, well, it wasn't bipartisan, it was just driven through by the Democratic majority, was objected to by the Republicans. But he got it across, and it's got at least a 10-year, probably 15-year scope. Your question is saying, OK, what happens, though, if a Republican or Donald Trump, as a Republican, comes in uh, at the end of 2024, in the 2024 election? 
the brilliance of the IRA is that is the Made in America provisions. So you get these additive incentives. So you get 30% 30, 30 of your costs if you're making green hydrogen, but you get even more if you're making building your hydrogen plant in a state that was previously or currently a coal-intensive state. You get more if you've got unionised labour and apprenticeships and things like that. As it's turning out, um, from August when it was introduced to April of this year, so that's eight or nine months, about 200 billion US dollars has been invested in green manufacturing plants, whether they're cars or batteries or solar or wind, clean technologies. 20 times more than the amount invested in 2019. It's staggering. And a lot of that's coming from overseas, but a lot of it's domestic. It's a lot of money, and about three quarters, a little bit more than 75% has gone into what's called red states, states where the governor is a Republican. So the Republican states are benefiting more than the Democratic states, and you know, winning them off the teat just because there's a change in president would be difficult. So it's impossible to predict the future, of course, but I'm actually modestly confident that even if there's a Republican, uh, a shift to a Republican president and Congress, the investment in clean technologies will continue. And let me give you a specific example of that. We've, they've just spent weeks negotiating the debt limit in the US, and so the Biden administration has had to make concessions to the Republican Congress to reduce spending limits going forward. And I expected that the Inflation Reduction Act would have been a target, but it came through unscathed. It is not one of the concessions that the Biden administration had to make. And I think it's because the Republican states are such big beneficiaries of it. So we might be okay. Hmm. Um, Dr. Finkel, um, I just, uh, I really admire what you've said. One of the big things about energy use is the fact that military everywhere uses a hell of a lot of energy and they do not report on their use of energy and there is no good mechanism to get them to report. I think uh, President Biden is starting to get more, better reporting, but it seems to me that that area is one that should be examined as part of the, the global effort to reduce um, use of, again, of energy, of the old style energy. That's an interesting question. I must admit it's not something that I've specifically looked at, but my answer would be you pick your battles. Um, the military needs to run its military enterprise, and good luck running an aircraft carrier on batteries. You know, <laughs> it's just not—you know—it's not happening today. But the more that we adopt these technologies in the civilian society, the more they will flow into military activities. There's just no question of it. But I would say that I don't, I don't even know what percentage it is. It'll be significant, but I'd be surprised if it's more than two or three percent. And I think it will take care of itself with a 10, 15 or 20 year lag as we solve the problems across the non-military society, which is the 97 or 98 percent. 
Thanks, Alan. Uh, I was just wondering what you think the impact of the, some of the big dirty projects that are coming on, like uh, Sunrise and Betterloo Basin, and, and what impact that's going to go on, on reaching our targets. So you asking what's the impact of the new coal and oil? Well, particularly, particularly Betterloo Basin and Sunrise. Oh, Betterloo and things like that. Um, very, very difficult for the government. You know the government wants to do the right thing. Um, there's economic pressure. Um, it's, I've got a little section in the book which I titled The Moral Dilemma. It sounds unacceptable, but I think it's right. And that is that if we don't exp export oil and gas, somebody else will. We're not going to reduce the demand for coal and, and oil in India by refusing to export it to them. We're not going to reduce demand in China. If we don't supply it, somebody else will. The thing to focus on is what I said at the beginning, is decarbonising our own society, contributing to the decarbonisation agenda in those other countries so that they won't buy our oil and gas. And so you will find that a lot of the rhetoric about China, for example, and to some extent India, but especially about China, is they're still building coal-fired power stations. And it's true, they're not building as many as their five-year plan six or seven years ago would have anticipated for now, but they still are. But at the same time, when it comes to investment in clean technology, China is deploying more solar electricity per year than any other country by country mile. So about two or three times more than the United States per year, two or three times more than the European Union. Not just one country, but the European Union. Same with wind, they're deploying more than any other country. Same with uh, electric cars. Half the electric cars made and purchased in the world are purchased in China. Half, just one country. China deploys more nuclear power, which is zero emissions electricity by country mile than any other country. And, sorry for the pun. Um, and they also are deploying more heat pumps, which is the reverse cycle air conditioning that is incredibly efficient for heating buildings. So China is investing massively. You couldn't ask them to do more. And what's happening is their rate of building coal-fired power stations is, is coming in lower than what they originally predicted because they are becoming unneeded. And I just think that's the right way to do it. Help, help countries through what we can supply for them to economically invest in zero emissions technologies so that the coal, oil and gas demand just withers away. Um, our, our time's almost up, but I, I want to follow through on the first question about the potential for a change of government in the United States. Um, we also will have elections uh, here and uh, it occurs to me Scott Morrison is still sitting in the parliament and we never know what might happen. How are our policy settings, do we have an equivalent thing to be optimistic about as you've described the IRA in, it is a bad acronym isn't it, in, in, in America, um, are there things that the Albanese government is doing that can't be undone in two years time? To some extent. Um, so they did legislate the 43% target and that can be unwound by legislation, but that means that an opposition 
party coming in and winning, if not the next election, the one after, um, would have to have control of both houses of parliament because they would have to actively legislate against it. We've also got a, an equivalent to the red states and the democratic states in that all the states, nearly all the states now, are, are Labor states, but 100% of the states have their own state-based ambitions for getting to zero by 2045 or 2050. And the state-based um, targets are actually quite aggressive. So it would be a lot to unwind. Mm. Mm. But it, it, uh, I don't think it's as clear as the situation with the Republicans and the Democrats in that unwinding the IRA would be... I mean, that would just be extraordinarily difficult. Yeah. Um, they, well, you know, you could imagine an incoming government getting rid of the safeguard mechanism. But the safeguard mechanism is important, but it's, it's the icing on the cake. The really important thing is the investment in transmission lines. We need transmission lines, and the current government has put aside $20 billion to contribute to fund funding transmission lines. Without the transmission lines, you can't bring on the solar and the wind. And the solar and the wind... Investors are just lined up, ready to invest in building new solar and wind farms if they can connect. So our biggest challenges here, I think, going forward, it's probably not likely to be the risk of a change in government. It's the risk that we can't get the permits to build the transmission lines because of legitimate, in many cases, landholder objections. Transmission lines go over farms, they go over uh, public property, they go over First Nations property. It's very, very difficult and slow. And to me, that's a bigger concern at this stage than a change of government. Mm, and something we've got pretty poor form on, I suppose, we're, in the past. But, but we're, but we're, we're, we're not better. alone on that. We're not alone. We're not no, alone. Europe no. has problems. America yeah. has problems. It's easier to build yes. a transmission line in China. Yes. I wonder why. <laughs> um, this book, uh, Powering Up, um, Alan, I'm sure will happily... Uh, autograph for you and write a message of hope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you again to Paperback um, for, for being here tonight. It's, um, there's a lot of detail in here. You're a big thinker. Um, I'm glad you're... He, Alan was telling me before we came out that he's, he's on a... He chairs a committee or something that um, really looks closely at what's going into our schools. So this made me happy. Um, something else that made me happy in this book is that you don't um, conclude by, you know, every book now finishes with either, where do I find my hope? You know, you just 280 pages of misery and then, it, oh, but I'm hopeful because the young, they're going to fix anything or everything. Or now that's turned as a bit of a trend, I note, to Indigenous knowledge. Um, and I think, you know, why are we expecting Indigenous people? Why do we expect the young um, to, to, to fix our problems? Um, this is really, in, it's in the present, um, and it, uh, congratulations. Thanks for letting us talk to you first, uh, and, uh, and, and good luck with the, the book, and thank you all very, very much for coming. Um, have a wonderful night, everybody. Safe travels home, and thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you, Alan. You've been listening to Sally Warhaft in conversation with Alan Finkel, recorded on Tuesday the 30th of May 2023 at the Wheeler Centre as part of the Fifth Estate series.
The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.